0: Uh, the middle of the week and plenty from the day on RTE Radio 1. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed.
1: And then that violence he visited on you, burning your foot, cutting you with a piece of pizza slicer, headbutting you in the face while you were recovering from a nasal injury, stamping on your arm, uh, stamping on your head, strangling you. Were you, were
2: you hospitalised for any of these attacks?
3: I was hospitalized 19 times in
2: 2019. For me, I suppose I was oblivious to it until I was about eight or nine. And then I became extremely anxious every time my parents went to work because I wondered if they would come home. Google, in its very early stages, was called Backrub. That is the most
4: extraordinary fact of our entire conversation. <laughs> yeah. Google idea was called Backrub. Back and we'll start
0: with the live line and a warning that this is a very difficult interview to listen to and could be triggering. Harrowing and powerful accounts of coercive control, Joe interviewed Mary, who was a victim of Daniel Kane,
1: A first man in Ireland to be convicted uh, of coercive control by a jury. His name is Daniel Kane. he's now 54, of Waterfall Terrace in Blanchardstown. In Dublin, and he was in a relationship with the woman you're about to hear from uh, for 20 months. During uh, the trial, uh, it emerged uh, that Kane burnt her foot, cut her face with a pizza slicer, head her when she was recovering from surgery, and punched and stamped on her, causing multiple fractures. He also stamped on her head and strangled her, leaving finger marks along her throat. Now, this man was convicted in November 2020 um, of coercive control, intimidation and assault and 12 counts of assault causing bodily, ha- causing harm. He appealed the sentence and that appeal has, he's, he's been in custody ever since, obviously. He appealed uh, the sentence and uh, obviously during the appeal, the woman could not speak publicly publicly. Um, and the uh, Court of Appeal um, and speaking on behalf of them, Justice uh, Isabel Kennedy handed down their judgment in the last few weeks and said that Kane has subjected a woman to a campaign of fear, humiliation, causing her to be fearful, submissive uh, and on edge. I'm paraphrasing this, I'll tell, I'll, I'll give more detail later on. She described Kane's behaviour as prolonged, oppressive, domineering, manipulative and frequently brutal, psychologically and physically designed to humiliate and degrade her and place her in constant fear. He used different methods of controlling and coercive conduct, violence and threats of violence, humiliation and uh, verbal emotional abuse. His moral culpability was high and correctly found to be so by the original sentencing judge and the appeal court found it was difficult to see how the overall ultimate sentence of 10 and a half years of actual incarceration is disproportionate we're now able to play that interview mary good afternoon
3: hi how are you joe
1: um more importantly how are you because it's been in the news again so dramatically in the last uh, week or so coercive controlling we spoke to people uh, over the last few programmes and they spoke about how it started very slowly. Now, in your case, uh, the man involved got ten and a half years uh, in prison. How, When you look back at it, Mary, how do you track where this coercive control actually started?
3: You don't know what's happening. You don't know. Yeah. It's just like... You start at 100% and the next day you're 99 and every day you go down 1%. Okay. And it's so insidious and it's so, it creeps up on you so slowly and quickly at the same time
1: yeah.
3: that you don't notice it until it, it's completely out of your hands.
1: And when, when did you realise this? this is very, very serious and very dangerous for you?
3: Um, the relationship began very quickly and everything moved very fast okay. and that's something I learned when I was in women's Aid that I never got to know him, oh. you know, it, we never, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Um I never got to know his triggers or whatever until I was living with them, and I was living with them very suddenly, and, um...
1: And what, what were the triggers, Mary, when you discovered them?
3: Oh, anything. If I oh. walked too slow, um, I was delaying them. If I walked too fast, I was ignoring them. Anything could set them up, anything.
1: My God. And what about money? Because that became, that financial control, did you try and control your, your income?
3: Yeah, what happened was I moved in with him, and I was just finishing a contract.
5: Yeah.
3: So, I suppose I had my last month's wages, and I had a few quid. Yeah. But over the next few months, obviously the money dwindles out, um, and he kind of suggested just take a few months off, like, and then look for your ideal job, mm-hmm. whatever. Um. So I was applying for jobs and that um, and I was on social welfare but as I said the money kind of ran out so the next thing it was we had bills to pay together and we had this to do together and that to do together and it always had to be together. I had no independence. It was our house together um, so it, it just kind of It became like a joint account, but it wasn't a joint account. I had no control over my joint account. He had full control. And so I ended up with literally, like, I would have to ask him for 3.30 to get a bus
1: at the time. My God. And then that, you put that beside the horrific violence he visited on you, burning your foot cutting you with a pizza pizza slicer, headbutting you in the face while you were recovering from a nasal injury, stamping on your arm, uh, stamping on your head, strangling you, which left finger marks along your throat. Were you you hospitalised for any of these attacks?
3: I was hospitalised 19 times in
1: 2019.
0: And Joe asked Mary about those stays in hospital.
3: The longest day I had in the hospital. When the hospital knew, the hospital knew what I was happening, but I wouldn't press charges. Okay. So um, they put me into the psychiatric and took off my phone. Mm-hmm. I t- took my phone away from me.
1: Oh, they thought you were you were trying to self harm.
3: No, they didn't. No, they knew what was going on. Yeah. They wanted me to have a little break away from him.
1: Okay. Okay. So because
3: we're... at that stage things were so like obvious to the hospital. Yeah. That they said, leave her here for a few days, kind of, take her phone over, he won't be able to contact her and see yeah. how she gets on. Um so I think that was like four days I was in hospital. I I ran away so many times I slept rough. I slept in bush shelters and bike bike sheds and um mm-hmm fields and parks when I couldn't get through to anyone like sometimes this would happen in the middle of the night so I had nowhere to go so I'd have to to escape and I'd have to sleep rough basically
1: Obviously you were scared of your life literally scared for your life
3: I wasn't scared for my life I wasn't. I, I, oh, I wished okay. he'd killed me. I wished he'd killed me. What I was scared of was that he, he used to stamp and beat me and do all sorts of things to my head. And all I was afraid of was that I was going to end up a vegetable and someone someone would be changing my nappies for the rest of my life. That, that, that was a worse fear than my death.
1: And Mary, could you tell anybody?
3: No, he didn't let me go anywhere. Else. He was Fam- my home.
1: Family, friends, work. No, conflict.
3: he didn't. Any anybody? Nobody. Nobody knew. Um, towards the end, people knew, but not not at the start or in the middle. People. I got to the, he wouldn't let me text anyone or he would have to he'd go through my phone and say he was playing a game and he'd just be looking at my text you know
1: Mike. and then the court case did you tell us about the court case and how that came about because that's that's different i suppose. Uh, Tell us how the court case came about. Where the, where the guard described you as one of the most courageous people he'd ever come across.
3: Sometimes that's a lovely term and some days I am a brave survivor and some days I'm a victim. I can't describe yeah. how I feel. Yeah. Some days, you know, some yeah. days I'm like, what's that song? And I can't sing, I'm a survivor. <laughs> you know. Um, I was in hospital three times that week. Um, it stamped on my head, so my ears bled. And I got really afraid that I was having some kind of... So I went over myself um, to the hospital. It was only across the road. and okay. I can't remember the second one. Like I, This was all a big, huge yeah. shock to me. But he... He hurt my arm. On a Thursday night, um, he caught my hand and he kicked my arm. So he broke, my arm was broken straight across. But I didn't know and on Saturday night, I said to him, I need to go to hospital. My arm isn't right, like my arm isn't working. And it was completely broken. Like my arm, my, my ulna was completely snapped. Um, When I went into hospital, um, he came with me and I had choke marks and I had a black eye. I had, you know, the usual, normal things that I would have had. And I got my x-rays done and the nurses were speaking to me and then the head of A&E was speaking to me and then there was detectives involved and I, I kept saying I fell, I fell, I fell. Yeah. And eventually I started to cry and I said, I didn't fall. And they said, well, we know you didn't fall because nobody yeah. can actually break their arms the way You yeah. You have broken well, yours he, well, unless
1: well, like he broke.
3: Unless a horse kicks them or something. Yeah. Um so it's all a big blur. He was arrested in the hospital and um, it, it was just all a big blur and I thought like we'd be back home a few days later because we had such a codependent relationship if that, that's right I thought this had all passed I'm not pressing charges or anything but yeah. there was enough medical evidence for, he, them,
5: to, for
3: that... them to charge him and I didn't even have to be involved
0: and Joe asked Mary if she had any advice for anyone in the same situation.
3: When the abuse really starts, if I had known there were that many supports out there, yeah. I could have done my own intervention, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I want people to know that there are so many supports. Yeah. I want people to know that...
1: That you will be believed.
3: That's my big he word, was, it, believed. Uh, he he told me no one would relieve me. Yeah, now he, he, he. we've discussed my education. I'm I'm a well educated girl. Yeah. I ended up in a relationship as a very well educated and very well qualified girl who had a really good job. Um I have seen doctors and dentists going through this. I have seen sixteen yeah. year old girls going through it yeah. with babies, you know. It doesn't matter what, what level or what stage you're at or what your circumstances are. I I, I just he always told me no one believe me and that's the big thing. They will believe you and I want to thank Jenmar Murphy and I want to say that all those guards that I dealt with and all the detectives I dealt with, they truly believed in me. They knew I wasn't lying and they gave me so much inspiration to be able to tell the truth. I wouldn't have been able for it only that they were so kind to me. It's not an easy thing to talk about. Yeah. Um,
1: That's great. Just, you know,
3: sometimes yeah. I want to forget about it and pretend yeah. it never happened yeah. but obviously it did. Yeah. And um, I see life moving on and you know People getting married and people having kids and... Yeah. I don't want to be the ones in, in the corner crying over domestic violence, but at the same time... Um,
1: You've been through it.
3: I've been through it, so... Yeah. But I just... Um, and I do want to say something. Mm. I was in Women's Aid for a long time and they're amazing. Yeah, Women's Aid. But I do want to say how many beautiful women came in there while I was there. Um, beautiful, gorgeous, and most beautiful kids. And I used to feel so sad for them because they had gone through it. But Charles was going through the same. Yeah. You've no idea how prevalent
6: it is.
0: Yeah. Well, they were just some excerpts of Mary's interview with Joe, and then Joe and the team read just a few of the emails from listeners.
6: I was in an abusive relationship for years. My blood boils when I hear what men think they can do to a woman. How dare they? When I was hit, shocked, belittled, verbally abused and emotionally abused. It's time it stopped. Thank God women are starting to speak out, because if we keep it secret, they will keep doing it. I know someone who, if he doesn't like a TV or radio programme, he will not allow his wife to listen. He had also taken a dislike to her brother and told her that he, her brother, is not to come to her house. When she invites him away, when she invites him anyway, this man is rude, bad-mannered, abusive and insulting to his brother-in-law. It's a dreadful situation for everyone involved, particularly this lady. My heart breaks for her.
1: And there's more coming in, Clara. You yeah. you gather them up. I'll read out some from the screen before you go again. Uh, listening to Mary just gave me the strength to go on in a very difficult week where I felt like giving up. I'm living in a domestic violence situation. I'm sitting here crying. Well done, Mary, from a lady that you have given strength to. Would you ask Mary, would, could she write about what happened to her and that she, this might be able to help others in similar situations? I honestly believe she can help so many people. Thank you to those inspirational women I spent my childhood growing up in an abusive house. My mother and I would be kept until four in the morning being tortured, then having to go to school a few hours later. When I got older, I bought a car and me and my mother just left in the night. Hopefully these women will inspire more women to leave these situations. We both, herself and her mother, have a good life now.
6: I have had... My head in my hands broken, as this is my life daily. My partner has never raised his hands to me as he's too smart to leave a bruise. Instead, my phone is monitored. I am allowed no friends. He uses my child as a weapon. He controls all the money and tells me daily how much of a disgusting person I am. Life is he'll try to leave, but he tells me I have to leave the home and he will take my son from me. I feel like dying daily, but try see out another day for my son. Please God, things get better. Coercive control is rife. I don't know what it was for years and years. I didn't know what it was for years and years. The emotional abuse was beyond believable. Because we didn't have children, he'd refer to me as a bitter, barren woman. He'd call my friends horrible names and say it was a joke. He tried to alienate me from family and friends. Escape is the only way out, but easier said than done. It took me years to realise it wasn't me. Education for both males and females is necessary peace and love to all women who suffer this torture. I have more, Joe.
1: Okay, and I'll read out the headlines uh, while, while you're gathering them together, Clara. Uh, the helpline Safe Ireland is a national body working to eradicate domestic violence which includes delivering frontline refuge and support services. Again, safeireland.ie, but I'm conscious a lot of people might not necessarily have free access or any access to Uh, online. So it's 1-800 and I'll keep giving out numbers one 800 341 one 800 341 if you have a pen and paper handy wherever you are. Women's Aid as you know is a voluntary organisation which provides support and information to women and their children who are f- being physically, emotionally and sexually abused in their own uh, homes and that's womensaid.ie and again that's 1-800 it's an important number one 800
0: Joe Duffy on the live line in the afternoon and earlier on Today with Clare Byrne, the legal system and the experience of abuse sufferers
4: wading through three separate legal systems which don't interact with each other is causing trauma revictimization and leaving women and children in life-threatening situations following domestic violence this is all according to the new report from the National Women's Council and the Department of Justice on the experience of abuse survivors the report is being launched right now but we can get more detail i'm joined by Cleona Sadlier executive director with the Rape Crisis Network Ireland and also Emma Murphy who's a domestic violence campaigner and advocate and thank you both for speaking to us today. Clean, if I can come to you first the report deals with these complex interactions between the three separate legal systems will you just explain to us the significance of the report and what its key findings are?
7: So this report in, in many ways for the first time details these three systems and how they interact and indeed don't interact in clash with each other. And it's really the first time that we're having that in the public space. And the reason for that is that the, the, the silences and the difficulty of telling this story is because uh, there, there's a lot of family law and child protection in there. So it is covered by in camera. So essentially, the secrecy around this issue has been has been if you like protected by law, so it 's really difficult to tell this story. So what this report does is it finally tells this story in black and white and what the three systems are let 's say, for example, I mean our interest would be where, for example, there is an allegation of child sexual abuse um, particularly within a family. That will go to, to child protection. That will go to Tusla and the social worker. to will be reported there. It will be reported to the Garda Síochána as well. And processes will begin there. On the one hand, the Garda are doing the criminal investigation. On the other hand, Tusla are first and foremost trying to protect that child and doing putting in a child protection response, which is not a criminal investigation. Uh, but those two are happening in parallel and they may clash. And then, of course, Because it's happening within a family, you will probably end up in a situation where there is a private family law case which will be treated in camera, which necessarily means that people can't talk about it.
4: Mm -hmm. So that's a a divorce or separation Mm. proceedings underway as well. So none of those systems are interacting with each other. Is that the problem?
7: They 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 are interacting with each other, but they're not interacting effectively. So there's not. So oftentimes, what what Anema can probably speak to this is what you will find is that once you enter this system, and and I mean I think everyone that I've spoken to has come to me, and I, I think it's a similar experience for for any organisation like ourselves. One of the first things that that largely the women, the, the protective parent who come forward, and it's largely the mothers, will say is, and "I think I'm going mad, because I trusted." you know child protection I trusted the Gardaí I trusted the, ju- the court and they're all asking me to do something different mm-hmm. they're all asking me to do something contradictory and I don't know how to choose between them and they're telling me I need to choose between those choices can, and those choices are contradictory can we, for, for we, example
4: Yes Scott, I just want you to explain that to us how, yeah. is the, how are the systems asking this person to
7: do different things So you may well be so So if 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 there is um if there is an allegation if there is concern that one of the parents is abusive to the child, obviously, you, you know, you, you want to limit that abuse. You want to stop that abuse right there and then you want to limit the access that that parent has to that child, and it's probably a parent, um, in, order to, in order to safeguard that child in the, in the immediate. You may end up with a custody case and an access case going on in family law, which requires you to provide access to that child. You may, end, you may have a barring order against the person who is abusing you um, in terms of domestic violence. And you may also be ordered simultaneously to to um, meet that abuser that you have a barring order against in order to facilitate their access to the children. So these are the contradictions that are, that are lived every day by anyone who enters that system. So it is the feeling of Am I going mad? Why, is, why, why does it feel like I have been asked to do the impossible? Mm-hmm. And it's just because these systems aren't working to get together effectively.
0: Cliona Sadlier there, then Claire spoke to domestic violence campaigner Emma Murphy.
4: The language in this report doesn't hold back it says that domestic violence victims are undermined and blamed by social workers, characterised as abusers in family law courts and sometimes not taken seriously by Gardaí and I know that you speak to many women who are in situations where domestic violence is happening do those statements ring true with the conversations that you're having?
8: Yeah, very much so. Um, like we still live in a very much of a victim blame in society um, and even especially if, if women have been going through abuse for years and they're in the cycle of abuse where they leave, they go back, they leave, they go back. The, the empathy piece, seems, there, there seems to be no empathy, say with, with guards, or with people that's working in these professions with the woman. With the woman. You know, and it's not taking into account what that woman has to go through, like Lena just said, like re-traumatized after going through a court case, but then also has to give access to the perpetrator. You know, so she's being put in a very, very difficult and very dangerous environment again with that one person that the woman is terrified of. So for the woman, she's feeling, well, why am I being punished for something that someone else has done?
4: And the lack of empathy, empathy or the victim blaming does that come in when the woman returns to that relationship or to that home with the abuser? Yeah, yeah,
8: we see it with the guards all the time, and you know we're still here. And well, why don't you just leave? Why don't you just do this? Why don't you just do that? And I suppose we're living in today's society, you know, we're in a big, huge housing crisis and everything else. So it's not it's not easy for a woman to leave a situation. And the empathy seems to be gone there. There is no empathy for the woman. And then often it's not taken into effect either that when a woman leaves a situation, she's at her most vulnerable. And it's the most dangerous time for a woman is when she actually leaves that that relationship, which shouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. She should be protected by the system.
0: Emma Murphy from Today with Claire Byrne and a reminder that you can find help and support at rte.ie slash helplines. And in the morning on the Ryan Tubridy Show, Blue Lights is a BBC police drama set in Belfast, and co-creator of the show Declan Lawn was on the line, and Ryan is a big fan.
9: Uh, congratulations on on Blue Lights, really, really excellent show. And I think that we need to go back a little bit to your your background as a journalist to uh, appreciate where you're coming from and to get into that that sense of your clearly intense understanding of of this of this place of the politics of the police. Yeah, uh, you were involved in uh, Panorama and spot the Spotlight programme. Tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I joined BBC Spotlight in the summer of two thousand and two, and I left the BBC in twenty eighteen. So sixteen years as an investigative journalist, based mainly in Belfast uh, and also out at London. Um, and I suppose I was a post-conflict journalist, Ryan. Mm. You know, we we spent the, that period counting the cost um, and and looking at the the effect of thirty years of violence on society. And towards, I suppose, around 2015, 2014, my, my friend Adam and I started writing short films and, and screenplays together. And this show, I suppose, is, is like a distillation of everything we learned over all of those years in journalism. It's, you know, all the families we sat with, all the the kind of violence we encountered. Um, it's all there. We kind of poured everything into, into Blue Lights.
9: We we've were talking only yesterday about the, the Republic of Ireland, broadly speaking, and I mentioned the famine in relation to the Trevelyan story I'm sure you're familiar with on, and, and inter, yeah. intergenerational trauma. That's from 1847 till 2023. Yours is so yeah. much more contemporary in terms of the politics of Northern Ireland. Uh, you talk about post-peace, post-peace process. And yet, when you go to certain parts of Northern Ireland, you know that the nothing is perfect, uh, that things are still being worked out, shall we say. But equally, despite the lack of of killing that's going on, there is an awful lot of damage. And I think that's something that really comes out in blue light, that there's a psychological tremor that continues to rumble along.
2: I'm fascinated by that and I think it's it's under-discussed. and it, it runs through Northern Ireland like the writing through a stick of rock. We, we have intergenerational trauma that has not really been addressed. And it filters down to generations who were born after the ceasefires and after the Good Friday Agreement. And um, I'm not really sure what we do about it. I mean, I suppose myself and Adam have tried to do in some small way our bit by addressing it in this drama. But pretty much everyone um, in blue lights, regardless of what generation they belong to or where they come from, have been affected by those thirty years of violence. And there's a lot of kind of father-son relationships and mother-daughter relationships, and it it, it runs through all of those because that's real life. I mean, I know I'm affected by it, and I don't, you know, I I don't want to put myself forward and say I was deeply affected by the troubles. I had a fairly middle-class upbringing, but 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 I was, I was. I think we all were.
9: Well, in your case, your 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 father was working in the bank. Was your mother in the bank as well?
2: Or, yeah. So my mum and dad made the uh, almost incredible decision to move from uh, Galway and Donegal to Derry in 1974, which of course was the, the epicenter really of, of the troubles in those years. And they worked behind the counter in the Bank of Ireland um, in the city side in, in Shipkey Street and in Strand Road, two different branches. And the things they encountered there were mm. just astonishing. I mean, regular robberies, like bomb scares and then actual bombs. And I mean, they were very young. You know, they talk about, my dad's dead now, but my mum talks about it now. I was talking to her this weekend and and she was saying, you know, we were just so young. We just just got on with it. And, And in a really weird way, it was kind of exciting. But for me, I suppose I was oblivious to it until I was about eight or nine. And then I became extremely anxious every time my parents went to work because I wondered if they would come home. And, and from where our house was in Derry, you could hear bombs going off in the city centre. But by the time they became conscious of it, mm. um, I became, I guess, a very, very anxious child. And I suppose that, that was my experience of it, you know, just, just constantly thinking, you're going to lose your parents. Um, I mean, so, uh, uh, you know, during the writing of Blue Lights and since, I've been, I suppose, doing a bit of self-psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. wondering, wondering what effect that had on me. And I, I suppose, yeah, and I've come to the conclusion that it had quite a big effect, really.
0: And Ryan asked Declan about how living with the threat of violence was normalised.
2: So you know that I created this show with Adam Patterson. He, yes. he came from the other side of the community. His dad was a prison officer. And, and Adam grew up with a gun in the house, which his dad always had within a couple of metres of him.
5: Mm.
2: When they were watching TV on a Saturday night, it would be under the, under the pillow on the sofa and at, at night time be on the bedside locker. They had bulletproof windows. You know, his dad never wore a seatbelt in the car in case he had to, you know, get out with the gun. So that was Adam's normal. And and he and his whole family have been affected by that. And I suppose one of the messages of Blue Lights is there's lots of people in Northern Ireland who don't want to put their hand up and say, look, I, I think I've been deeply affected by this. Yes. Because so many people were really affected by it. They actually lost people or they were maimed or horrifically injured and so you feel bad going, uh, no, I think this has had a really big effect on me and on our society. But, but maybe we, we have to start to do that because the more I talk to Adam about it uh, and the more he confides in me about what it meant and how it's affected him to this day, the more I think, God, maybe we need to just start talking about it more. And for us, one of the best ways of, of talking about things is drama. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, this drama really kind of comes from the heart.
9: It, you can see it. Uh, and it's it's, it's apparent in, with every episode. I, I have to congratulate you. I, I found it utterly compelling, um, particularly in the shadow of the Good Friday Agreement uh, commemorations that were happening in the last couple of weeks. And you talk mm-hmm. about post-traumatic stress disorder of sorts, but you're examining really a generation that whether they know it or not, uh, are suffering from what might be called a post-conflict stress disorder.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so, and in a, in a more generalised way, um, I just think it's I think it's endemic, and, and the problem with it is is that it exacerbates uh, issues now. So as as we pass down the kind of stress to the next generation, we're also passing down opinions and hard attitudes. And uh, one of my takeaways from my 16 years in journalism was a kind of a, a constant evolving shock at, at, at very, very, very young people inheriting the kind of sectarian attitudes that their their fathers and mothers would have had. And that is continues to be a massive problem in Northern Ireland. I mean, I know you, you mentioned at the start there you were in Belfast last week. You did a black taxi tour. That's I mean, right. I'm sure your takeaway was also probably, okay, th- this hasn't changed as much as it should have.
9: My, if you're asking me, I, I, my answer was that it was a tale of two cities. Uh, that there was, yeah, a, there, was there was a beautiful yep. modern Belfast that is young, thriving, economically sound, and pretty much um, no sectarian uh, totally. t- tinge in the air. And then there's the interface uh, working class uh, Belfast, if you want to call it that, uh, where you know we were told that there was a lot of damage done on on all sides. This isn't uh, necessarily one colour or another. Um, and yeah. I don't know if that analysis make, is is fair or justified, Declan.
2: This is your town. No, you've you've hit the nail completely on the head. Like if you walk through the Cathedral Quarter in Belfast, which is is our uh, equivalent to Temple Bar, mm. you're in a modern. European city, full of tourists, amazing restaurants, amazing pubs. You go to Belfast for the weekend; you'll have you'll have one of the best weekends of your life. Sure. But but a seven minute drive from there, and you're in places where those old atavistic tribal mm. divisions are still very very real for people of all ages. Mm. And my concern is that we're not we're not properly addressing it, and the political vacuum that we have at the moment uh, exacerbates it, and whilst i 'm generally an optimist and and I generally look around Belfast and go, "Okay, this is getting so much better. I do worry, mm. I worry about what you know what could be created here if if things don 't don 't go the right way
0: and Ryan asked Declan about the attitudes he tackled in the scripts for blue lights
2: let 's go back to blue lights on the
9: on the basis that it it is it throws up so many in, uh, intriguing Um, characters um, that all of which are based on either individuals or composites of people you met because you did intensive research you went out with the police uh, in the backs of their cars you spoke to so many people I was fascinated by the likes of Annie's character played brilliantly by Catherine Devlin where she's from the Glens of Antrim a place where people mm-hmm. wouldn't ordinarily join the police force and I remember during the peace process I remember the conversations about the police force would uh, would nationalists Catholics Republicans would they join the police which were so toxic for the Catholic community for so many years and here we are in mm-hmm. 2023 and her character you know she kind of has to leave her camogie team because she's tainted
2: yeah that's that's right so I'm a GA man. I mean, I I played hurling until um, last year, and I love the GA uh, dearly. Um, but the fact is, uh, in the north, if you are a young Catholic officer playing GAA for your local team, and, and particularly in, in, in particular areas, you can do it, but you have to be very conscious of it. And I, I spoke to a lot of young. Catholic officers who had um, decided of their own volition to lead their GAA teams because they felt they were too exposed um, and play uh, hurling or camogie uh, or football for the PSNI team. Um, And so it's a very real thing and again it's one of those things we don't speak about uh, very much Um, but it was Annie is a composite character of a lot of young Catholic nationalist officers that I spoke to Um, and it's another thing that you know, that blue lights... I, I suppose we're trying to be unflinching here, right? And looking at the GAA in an unflinching way was important for me because it's an organisation that I, I just love so much. Mm-hmm. But but unless we look at ourselves in the mirror, which is what, what drama is, really, um, we're not going to move on.
9: Uh, your inclusion of three things I, I found fascinating also. Food, and I'm talking about yeah. sandwiches from the garage. Music, whether it's Ronan Keating or anyone else. Uh, and yeah. dark humour uh, where anyone working in difficult jobs will find that's where, that's the only place you're going to find it.
2: Yeah. So all of those things came from research. As you mentioned earlier, we, we did about 18 months of really solid research on this, hung out with a lot of cops. Um, the food thing came from a police officer we met who brought in his own food because he just couldn't stand the, the filling station sandwiches. It just it was starting to break his heart. So we, we just basically stole that and, and put it in there. Um, music is crucial. Uh, cops on the beat, I didn't know this until I started researching it, but when, in between calls, they, they listen to a lot of music, and the protocol is you, you choose a song, your partner chooses a song, okay. and that's how you get through the day. Um, and uh, what was the other thing you mentioned? Uh, music, food, food and, and dark humour. Oh, yeah. Dark humor. Well, yeah, again, all from the research being around in the back of cop cars and and sitting in cafes with cops. Dark humor is is kind of how they cope. Um, And it was actually reminded us of our days in in journalism. You know, Adam and I around the world and at home as well, because journalists do that too. And it's not really, its not malicious or disrespectful. It's—it's it's literally a, a kind of a coping mechanism to, to get yourself through the day. So, all of that came from the research, and, and that's how we write. We just go and research it for months and months and months, and then steal stuff, basically.
0: Declan <laughs> Lawn from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the art of rebranding business journalist Adam McGuire was taking a look.
4: Do you remember when a tube of Starburst were called Opal Fruits, you're showing your age now if you do, or when the Snickers bar was a marathon? And did you know that back in the 1960s, the sports giant Nike started life as Blue Ribbon Sports? Recently, the University of Galway spent €480,000 on rebranding. Many other institutions and companies have tried this over the years with varying degrees of success and I'm joined now in studio by Adam Maguire, RTE business journalist for a closer look at the business of rebranding. Good morning, Adam. Hi, Claire, How are you? This is fascinating. (laughs) This is really... Because sometimes it's clear why it happens and sometimes... It's impossible to know why a company yeah,
10: would. It almost seems like for the sake of it
4: rebrand. But I mentioned the cost there to the University of Galway just as an example because it can be an expensive business, can't it? Yeah,
10: it, it can take a lot of work, especially if you're dealing with a big institution or a big multinational company, because they likely spend a lot of time workshopping a new name or a new look, getting in very expensive consultants, doing lots of market research to see what people like and don't like. Then you have to check and make sure someone else isn't already using it, and you're not going to get sued or uh, have a trademark infringement against you so that's a lot of legal framework uh, and and legwork and you probably have to do a lot of copyright and trademark filings around the world as well and then you actually have to roll out the rebrands you have to change the logos on your offices on your website on your business cards uh, and and everything else and you you then also probably want people to know that the name change is happening so you have to spend a lot on a marketing campaign and you know you probably can think of ads of you know new look same great service kind of thing where Mm -hmm. you want to make sure you're not putting existing customers off while maybe also trying to encourage new ones come in as well so very expensive very complicated process And why do they do it? Yeah, loads of, of reasons. Really, a multitude why you might decide to rebrand. In some cases, it's simply because they want to refresh or revitalise the company image. You know, it's a good way of shaking off an old-fashioned reputation. Maybe is, is to get a new name, a new look. The examples you gave there of Opal Fruits and, and Marathon Bars that was because it, Snickers and, and Starburst were the names in, in most other countries outside of Ireland and the UK. So they decided it was easier to have one global brand, and then it meant you know, at the World Cup, you could have a yes. Snickers ad, and everyone would know what you're talking about. So that's why we mm-hmm. we had to change the names in this country, but it could be simply the name is too long-winded, so they want something snappier or kind of you know a, a, a bit lighter, or maybe they're trying to emphasise a change in direction. You know, they've new products and services that they want people to know they're, they're offering, uh, and uh, or else they're trying to de-emphasise something that they used to do that people uh, don't like anymore. A lot of rebrands are done because a company gets a bad reputation so they say right we'll get rid of the old name that has negative connotations and, and we'll move on with, it, with a new look.
4: Well they're the fascinating ones. You've yeah. a couple of examples now.
10: <laughs> yeah and, and you know there's loads over the years and some of them are done quite quietly because they're trying to downplay the thing that they don't want people to think about in relation to their brand. I, I think a good example is KFC because they kind of changed their name without actually changing their name. You know, Obviously the original is Kentucky Fried Chicken But in the 90s, they slowly, without making a big splash, they just slowly started using the initials more and more instead of saying Kentucky Fried Chicken. Essentially because, you know, there was this growing negative connotation around fried and deep fried food and they didn't want people to think, oh, this is really unhealthy food.
4: Now, <laughs> so they didn't stop frying it. They oh, just no, no stopped they didn't tally. change anything about <laughs> what
10: they were doing. They just didn't, you know, make a big deal about the fact that it was fried. And if you look now on, on the website, I was looking on their Irish website yesterday, you cannot find the word fried anywhere, uh, even in descriptions of the food, which talk about, you know, the ingredients and the chicken and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mention the fact that it's all deep fried, which it all still is deep fried. Uh, uh, but they just try and get away from that without actually changing anything. Uh, another example is uh, of a company that tried to use initials to shake off a bad reputation is, is BP, used to be British Petroleum. Uh, in the early 2000s, it, it had developed a really poor reputation around pollution emissions, uh, safety standards. So it rebranded initially as as Beyond Petroleum because it was saying, well, we're, we're moving away from that. We're, we're going towards renewables. Uh, and they also ditched, you might remember, they had a shield, was their old logo? Yeah. Uh, they dished it for a kind of green and yellow sunflower, which is you know very environmentally friendly mm-hmm. looking. Uh, and eventually, they dropped the Beyond Petroleum. They're just now BP. Twenty years on, the vast majority of their their revenues and profits still come from fossil fuels, but they're trying to you know downplay that fact. Still
4: frying and, uh, the chicken.
10: Still frying the chicken, <laughs> essentially, yeah. And, and another good company with a bad reputation, Philip Morris, would have made Marlboro cigarettes, Benson and Hedges. Uh, its rebrand has been much more significant. It's it's now called Altria. The website looks like something of a tech firm or a pharmaceutical firm, very you know clean and you know modern looking, um, and its tagline is "Moving Beyond Smoking." They want a, a smokeless future. Uh, but they still own most of the big cigarette brands in the world. They also own a lot of chewing, dipping tobacco, uh, investment in vape vape companies. So. They still want people to consume tobacco and nicotine, but uh, they don't want people to to know that it's Philip Morris necessarily that's doing that.
4: OK, so it's Altria. And, and those companies then that are trying to change direction, Adam?
10: Yeah, a rebrand can be part of that process as well. I think Facebook is a good example of that. It changed to Meta in 2021, which it said was to emphasise its focus on the, the metaverse, which is this virtual reality world that Mark Zuckerberg believes the future of the business is. Mm-hmm. And it's put huge amounts of money behind this, not, not just the rebrand, although that was expensive, investing in the metaverse itself, this technology, uh, its Reality Labs division lost $13.7 billion last year alone. So huge, huge amounts of money. Some would say that the, the rebrand was also a reputational thing because Facebook's brand had been poorly damaged by the Cambridge Analytica access, uh, unauthorized access of, of user data, you know, accusations around inaction, hate speech and, and offensive content, Russian interference in US election. All those things came along and, and, and then they switched to meta. But, of course, the Facebook brand still exists. It's still the name of the, the social media company. And Meta also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. So it's, it's not unusual that you would have a different name of the parent company uh, to one of the brands. Yes. Google did this years ago. The, the parent company of Google is now Alphabet. Google as, as a brand still exists as well.
0: And Adam had some more examples of
10: failed rebrands. 14 years ago, Pizza Hut tried to rebrand itself as The Hut because it wanted uh, people to know that it also sold pasta and salads and other foods like that. Uh, it also Also tried past the hut at some of its UK stores, but people just simply said no. Uh, The the consumers hated it, so they 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 they, went back. Did they? They went back. Yeah. The the parent company, uh, Young Foods, claimed it was just a trial. They were just trying it out. They weren't really going to change. UK Royal Mail, another great example. Um, They said they felt the name was old-fashioned, didn't reflect the fact that it had international operations, logistics companies, call centres. So in 2001, they changed uh, to Consignia. It was a rebrand that cost about two million pounds a year and a half later they changed it back. Everybody hated it so they spent £2 million just to change the brand back after two years to all yeah.
4: And does anyone ever ask the expensive consultants why they decided that Consignia or the Hut was the way
10: to go? <laughs> they might get consultants in to find out what went wrong They might the get more consultants
4: board. in but what about when it works and it helps a company's image?
10: Yeah I think generally it, it, it helps when you're simplifying the brand image and, and maybe the best known examples are companies that changed their name before they were particularly well known before that brand had gotten embedded so so, you know, Google in its very early stages was called Backrub, which is a really terrible name. That is a the most
4: extraordinary fact of our entire conversation.
10: <laughs> yeah, Google the idea was called
4: Backrub. Backrub
10: was the initial. And the idea was, it was because it was all about linking to each other, and that's how you boosted your ranking in the search engine. Bizarre. So, yeah, horrible name. Google probably isn't an awful lot better, but it caught on. So, so it, it's worked. As you mentioned, Nike was Blue Ribbon Sports, but they changed to Nike relatively early on, and they put the Swish logo in, and that obviously became kind of iconic, really, and, and a household name. And, and simply ification is is really helpful. Uh, Pete's Super Submarines was a brand that started in the mid-60s. Three years later, it shortened it to Pete's Subs. Then it changed it two years again after that to Pete's Subway. And then another two or three years later it became Subway. And okay. that's obviously a brand so that... So Pete was knows. gone. Pete was gone, yeah, yeah, and his Super Submarines just But I'm sure submarine. Pete
4: is um, very happy with what he has in the bank <laughs> if he's still around. Just a, some coming in from listeners. Oil of Ulay became Olay. Morrow became Boost. You remember right, that? Yeah. And Jif became Sif.
10: And I, I think I think with the Jif and Sif one, it's definitely another one of those internationalising the brand. So it's, yeah. you know, make it the same across. I'm not sure uh, that might be Morrow Boost. They, they, they changed the bar though.
4: I now. still call Sif, Jif. Yeah, I, I
10: think, in, yeah. And, and, I insist. And all of Yule as yeah. well. Yeah. I'd,
4: probably, I'd probably call a Snickers a marathon, but anyway. <laughs> um, now, companies reverting to initials then for simplicity and, and brand recognition. I'd say that sometimes works, but you have some examples of where it did work.
10: Yeah, exactly. And again, we're going to simplification and making it shorter. Uh, International business machines generally has been known as IBM for a long, long time. That, that, that's the, the, the brand people would know. GlaxoSmithKline is now officially GSK, uh, which was an easy Easy rebrand because I think, you know, because it's such a long name, GlaxoSmithKline, most people just call the GSK if they were talking about the company. And and even companies that are keeping their name, they're changing the look of the brand and, and simplification is part of that trend. Uh, uh, you know, people will notice company logos now are, are flatter and more kind of minimalist looking. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, it's because in the 2000s and the 2010s there were very complicated, colourful uh, uh, logos and branding. And so you always have the reaction against that. If you want to stand out from what everyone is doing, you do the opposite so that's why we, we move towards the minimal look but also a more practical reason is that brands are are, are, are designing these things for massive billboards all the way down to your smartphone so mm-hmm. if they want your their brand to be legible on a little avatar on you know Instagram or on Twitter it needs to be very easy very to read and very simple and clean. Adam
0: Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne And on Morning Ireland, burnout for Irish nurses.
11: Physically exhausted, undervalued, stressed, under and sometimes not paid. That's the working experience of most nurses in Ireland, according to a survey of over 2,000 nurses carried out for the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. They're gathering in Killarney today in a week where, over, on one day, over 700 patients were waiting on trolleys and chairs in hospitals for a bed in a hospital. The president of the INMO is Karen McGowan, and she's with us now. Karen McGowan, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Uh, Tell us more about the main findings of the survey.
12: Yeah, I suppose the theme of the conference is safe staffing, making it happen. And I suppose uh, we surveyed our members during the worst of the overcrowding crisis, which was January to March of this year. And I know our members were surveyed on their physical and mental wellbeing in the workplace. So the results are very stark, Brian, and unfortunately, they don't seem to be getting any better. There has been no opportunity for nurses and midwives to regain a stable foot in Canada since 2019, as has been just crisis after crisis in the health service. So almost three out of four nurses and midwives who responded to this survey have considered leaving their current workplace. And that means that the fate of the entire health service is dependent on those people deciding, that decide to stick it out for another month or another year or whatever they feel that they can do. So in the meantime, the staff shortages. shortage is are having a direct impact on patients and the vast majority of nurse and midwives are saying that staffing levels in their workplace cannot meet the work demands, which has a significant impact on patient safety. Well, and at this rate, Brian, you kind of have to consider that unsafe staffing has become the norm and that, you know, the hospitals are not safe for, for patients on any day of the year now.
11: T- tell us what it's like where you work. You're a nurse in Beaumont in Dublin.
12: I am, yeah. I work, uh, work. I have spent fourteen years in the emergency department, and it's it's incredibly difficult. Um, emergency departments are an incredibly uh, difficult place to work. As you know, we had seven hundred and one people uh, people on trolleys yesterday. The level of stress and burnout is very apparent, and our our uh, results of our study reflect that. You know, two thirds feel absolutely exhausted. Um, and uh, the experience is that um, th- that that you know people feel constantly under pressure from their workplace to work additional hours. So even when they are off, they still feel stressed, um, and um this is really negative negatively impacting on their health. Um there is a huge intention to leave, uh, like our respondents, um, our members stated that they had considered leaving the workplace in the last month, and it's it's sad it's sad to be at this stage that the results uh, of the workplaces adding so much stress and physical um, uh, distress to them.
11: You say that a focus should not just be on finding and keeping more nurses, but how the nurses are rostered together. What, what do you mean by that?
12: So we're calling for um, safe uh, safe staffing and skill mix, um, and this is government policy. So we know that this um, this safe staffing framework is is working really well in the likes of California, and New South Wales, but we need the legislation on to underpin this piece of of uh, of, of uh, work that we know from pilot sites that it works really well.
0: Aaron McGowan talking to Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. And we're into the fine weather days, so Claire Byrne was talking to sea gardener Marie Power and wild food Mary Bolfin about beginning foraging for food.
4: Mary, you have a wonderful display in front of you for people who are watching us on, on camera. What did you bring in?
13: Oh, so I brought um, a wild garlic pesto and then I brought one of its first cousins that is very common in the cities. This is one that comes out much earlier in the year and it's called Three Corner Leek. And you wouldn't use a pesto from it, but it's like chives and it's a beautiful plant, mostly grown for its beauty. This one is a cabbage pretending to be a garlic. Right. (laughs) This one is a wild pea called vetch. And then I have something for beer drinkers here. This is ale hoof or ground ivy. And I have herb roberts, plantain, wild arum, which is not edible, it's actually poisonous but it's a magnificent flower to show pollination and how insects and the flowers are connected and then have primroses. This is why we need guidance
4: here because a (laughs) lot of people, I mean, you're obviously an expert in in foraging and have been for many years, but a lot of people just don't know what to look for, do they? Yes,
13: and you really need to be certain what you're doing. With green plants, it's not that bad, but still. Um, But this one as well, when it's, quite grown. It's very obvious to see when the Wild Arum is young and the first leaves come out, they look superficially uh, similar to garlic. So it's one I always show people so they can see the difference mm-hmm. because you really don't want to be eating wild arum. And when you take people
4: out to forage and to, to teach them how to do it, how, how does it work? Are you picking as much as you can or are no, you just No, 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 no.
13: That would not be sustainable. I take, you know, uh, sometimes a school group even, so that can be 25, but often it's like a family or a group of about 10 or 15. And what we do is we take our phones. We do take a little nibble of various different and things, but I have cards which have the English name, the Latin name, the parts I use generally. And it's just like a little snapshot. So when you go home, you don't have 20 photos of green things, and you're going, Oh, I know she said that was, but what's it for? Or I know what it's for, but I can't remember the name. So, so you're, you're taking you have, a picture with your cards. You're taking in a it. picture a- of the plant. And your card, and then you have a little starting point. That's a, a and then we go back to the kitchen. Clever way to yes. do it.
4: Now, Mary, stick on your headphones there if you can find them, because I have Mary on the line. Good morning to you, Mary. I know you were first introduced to sea foraging as a child, weren't you?
14: That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was part of the coastal diet here in County Waterford. Um, well, for as long as we can remember, probably back to the first hunter gatherers, but it was fashionable. Well, fashionable, yeah, if that's the right word, up to maybe the seventies, and then it went out of vogue, and now it's back. (laughs) It's back back with a a vengeance. And you
4: stopped doing it yourself for for a long time, didn't you?
14: Yeah, I did. Yeah, I I went. I kind of went away from it, and it wasn't. um, It just wasn't as uh, as uh, easily available. It was probably regarded primarily as a health food when I was a child, and if you were eating it, it was for health reasons. (laughs) Now you've got top chefs using it as a flavour enhancer, um, you know, to give more umami flavour to their food or to um, even just to add a nice pecan garnish like to something if you're using something like pepper
4: Yes. And can you go down to your local beach if you're listening to this now and someone's fortunate enough to have a local beach and start picking seaweed or there are only certain areas of the coastline where you can go and forage?
14: You've got to be careful about uh, water quality. That's the main thing. Uh, the water quality where you're picking has to be excellent. You need to and you need to know that most most local authorities post up the results at the head of beaches and Green Coast beaches and Blue Flag beaches would have that information there. And so would a lot of others. But uh, if even if not, you can contact them. Uh, you can go onto a website called beaches.ie and that will give you the water you know, the most recent water quality. Mm. That's the first thing. Um, but then beaches vary depending on the degree of exposure to the elements and to waves and so on. Um, and if you've got very slow moving beaches, like, you know, shallow, long inlets or estuaries and things like that, they're going to have an awful lot of maybe one type of seaweed. Um, so, it, you know, you yeah, some beaches are better than others. Mm. And um, I would stay away from, Beaches that are near built up areas, campsites, uh, anywhere there's boating of any description or fishing going on.
0: Mary Bulfen and Marie Power on Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.